he was fine all week. We were at a conference in uh, Nottingham this week, our Vineyard National Leaders Conference. Um, really encouraging. It was really, really encouraging to see how many more churches have been planted in the last year um, throughout England and Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland with uh, the Antrim Coast Vineyard. Isn't that what it's called? Yeah, Lauren. It's in Lauren, but it's called the Antrim Coast Vineyard. And hopefully one of those guys are going to be here this evening with us too, Andrea or Andy from that church. If you remember, we had them here last summer and they spoke to us. So their church plant is underway and going well. And it's just so lovely to meet, um, just to meet together with family in a, in a bigger context. Although it was rather big and I am definitely getting old because I couldn't cope with how many people were in there. There was about 1,400 people gathered at Trent Vineyard for that conference. And I just turned into this grumpy old woman who was just like, too many people here, too many people, too many people. Can't get near the coffee, can't get near anything. Anyway. I repented of my bad attitude, and uh, it was lovely. It was lovely to worship together and hear, hear from God, be taught by some wonderful teachers. So I would encourage you, there's a great website called Vineyard Churches UK in Ireland, VCUKA. If you want to go on there at anytime.org, I think it is, if you go on there, you can find loads of um, talks from not just this conference that we were at this year, but other years. There's loads of resources on there. I really, really encourage you to go on there and have a wee look and have a listen to some, over the years, we have had some phenomenal teachers come along to that conference. So can I encourage you to do that? Just go along um, and because you just don't want to be listening to Jason and I. Seriously. You want to be listening to other voices and have other people teaching you as well rather than just the two of us. So I encourage you to do that. So this morning, we, today, we celebrate VCD's 15th birthday. Cheryl already so well said. Um, and God has been so faithful, hasn't he? He's been so incredibly kind over the past 15 years. And my introduction to Vineyard at the very start was in 1999, just after Micah, our second boy, was born. And uh, we dandered into the Montague Arms in Port Stewart. Anybody remember the Montague Arms in Port Stewart? It was a bit of a dive, to be honest. Like, it was pretty rough. Um, <clears throat> Jason went the first week because I said, I don't know if I want to take a six-week-old and a not-quite-two-year-old to a pub on a Sunday morning. Now, not that I was overly religious. I would have been quite happy to go to the pub myself and the evening before, but I just thought, what is it going to be for kids? How possibly could there be anything for children in a bar on a Sunday morning? <clears throat> so Jason went, came home, and said, you have to go next week. And he said, I'll, I'll mind the kids and you go on your own. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm too nervous to do that. I'm not going in somewhere on my own. I was a lot more shy back in 1999. And um, we went together. And I can still remember like it was yesterday. I remember walking in to this room that was still smelt of the beer and the smoke from the night before. There was a pool table pushed over in the corner. There was a keyboard up in another wee tight corner, and there was a young guy with a skinny guy from Glasgow with a Bible in his back pocket. And as we began to sing these simple songs in this room that really I didn't really want to be in, the presence of Jesus just fell in the room like I hadn't experienced for a very long time. And my heart was captured. So the very first thing for me, when I think of Vineyard and our, my journey in Vineyard, when I think of this family, and we are just one family, and you, you know how often, if you're a part of the church here, if you've been here before, you know how much we honor the rest of the whole body of Christ, right? But when I came into Vineyard, I just found this place of 
intimate, face-to-face worship with Jesus. No hype. It wasn't anybody sort of hyping us up and trying to get us whipped up into a frenzy to worship God. It was just absolute simplicity. And that completely grabbed my affection and my attention right from the beginning. It wasn't just the songs that we sang. It wasn't just the style. But it really was the simplicity of it. Just simple songs. One person on a keyboard singing songs. Now, she did have a voice like an angel, given that right now. She had a beautiful voice, but that wasn't it. You see, some of you, like me, you've maybe been part of Vineyard for a long time. Some of you for a shorter time. And whether or not we are familiar with the style of worship here at Vineyard or not, you might have some questions. And some of the common questions we get when we talk about our style of worship and how we worship is, why do we sing so many songs? My question is, why do we not sing more songs? But that's a whole other thing. Um, Why do people sometimes cry? Right? I get that quite common. When people come to church for the first time, they'll say, I don't understand why I'm crying. Why am I crying? And it's like, it's Jesus. You've just encountered Jesus. And he wants to heal your heart. And the Holy Spirit is here. And that's why sometimes our eyes leak in the middle of that. Or why do people wave their hands in the air air and and do that kind of thing? Or why do they bow bow down on the floor? Or when Jason's feeling particularly excited, he sometimes headbangs. Why does that happen? What's all that about? And I reckon that in the last 15 years, I didn't go back to check, to fact check, but I'm pretty confident in the last 15 years, at some stage or other, in each of those years, we have taught about worship. Because it is a fundamental of not just who we are, as a vineyard church, but as who we are as a people of God. Um, and sometimes it's been an instruction of how we worship, as in the, you know, why do we raise our hands? Why do we do all those things? But this morning, what I want to talk about in this anchor series, I want to look at the essence of worship, the very essence of it, the person that we worship, and why is it that we worship him? Turn with me to Exodus 4, if you have your Bibles with you. If you need a Bible, Annette will hand them out. I just assume now she's going to do that job. We all okay this morning, yeah? Doing good? So Exodus chapter 4. And here's a wee bit of background. The people of Israel were separated from God and from their practices of worship for quite a period of time while they were under bondage in Egypt, okay? And they were still, like, they would have retold and remembered the stories that they were the sons of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they would have retold those stories, and they would have remembered that they belonged to God. But it was a very different place that they found themselves in. They were in slavery. They were in bondage. And a lot of their practices and a lot of the the ways that they would have wanted to worship God, they were no longer allowed to do. So they found themselves in a very different place. It would have been very easy for them to start to think that God had deserted them during that time. So here at the start of Exodus, we see God calling out Moses and giving him a couple of supernatural signs to prove to the people that he was God, that God was God, and that he was sending Moses to rescue them. So we jump to verse 29 to 31. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. 
And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Moses and Aaron tell them what God began to tell them, all that God had told them, showed them the signs, and it says they did what? They believed. They believed. They had to believe and believe all over again. They had to know that God was coming. So Moses and Aaron could have rocked up to them, began to tell them all these things and be like, yeah, right. Have you seen our circumstances? Do you know what it's like to be a slave? Do you realize that every year it feels like more of our freedom has been taken from us? And you're coming here and you're telling us that now that God has seen us and God remembers us, but there was something within them that was sparked. And I think the part of it was that the supernatural sign that Moses did. God had said to Moses, if we look back to the start of that chapter, he says, what is in your hand? In verse 2, and Moses says, a staff. And the Lord said, throw it to the ground. And as Moses threw it to the ground, it became a snake. And he ran from it. I too would run from a snake. Yep. Reach out your hand, take hold of its tail. So Moses reached out, took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff. Then the Lord said in verse 6, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was full of leprosy. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. Moses did, and his hand was completely healed again. So these were the miraculous signs that Aaron and Moses showed the people. And it says they believed. They believed. And then what did they do once they believed? They saw the signs that they... that. Moses and Aaron showed them that they, they, God had sent them, and they heard that the Lord was concerned about them, had seen their misery, and they bowed down, and they worshipped. There's some of you this morning, and you need to know that God is concerned about you. You need to know that God is concerned about you. Sometimes you come to a place of worship like this this morning, and it's like there's a block. It's like you come and you're so consumed by your pain and the genuine things that are going on in your life. And it feels like there's a wall between you and God. Well, I want to tell you this morning that for you to know that God is concerned for you, you can break down that wall. He cares for you. And whatever sign you need this morning... Whatever sign you need from him this morning, I am confident that he wants to give you that sign so you will know that he sees you, he knows you, he knows your pain, he knows your anguish, he knows your circumstances, and he wants you to know that he is breaking in on your behalf. And then we worship. Does that make sense? When God shows you that he is concerned about you, when God shows me that he's concerned about me, my response is worship. When God moves on our behalf, we worship. When God moves when you weren't even asking him to, you worship. I'll tell you a funny story, right? This is this, sometimes, does God ever answer your prayer sometimes without even asking? Yeah, right, so this was a very silly example of this, but we were on a tram, waiting on a tram to go to the conference on the last day in Nottingham. There was loads of all other vineyarders wearing these same wee bracelets, all waiting to go to the conference. And you know when you're in a different city and you really only know how to get from A to B? That's kind of me in Nottingham. I know where to get the tram. I know where to get off the tram. I know where to get back on the tram again to take me back to where I need to be. That's it. So there's this announcement. 
there was a problem on the, the track. There was a car on the tram track, and they were saying about where it was between. It meant nothing to me. I thought, that's okay. It has nothing to do with me. And then when we get on the tram, then there's all these announcements saying, oh, you need to get off at such and such a stop. And I suddenly realized that that is quite a distance about somebody else around us. It was all that everybody's talking around us and going, I wonder how much an Uber would be to take us from there to the conference. And of course, we're running late because we're always running late. And <clears throat> we're all trying to work out what to do. And somebody else looked it up and says, oh, it's a 20-minute walk. And it was like minus four, right? It was really cold. I thought, I don't want to walk 20 minutes and minus four. So we're all doing all this and we're all try trying to work it all out. We get off the tram stops at the stop where they say, this is it, end the line. We get off, all of us, all the Vineyard Conference people, and everybody's kind of standing looking at each other. And then all of a sudden, this wee woman with the, tra with the tram uniform on comes up and goes, stop, 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 stop. And everybody's like looking at her. She goes, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. And she's on a walkie-talkie, and she goes, the line's cleared. Get back on the tram again, right? So I instantly start thanking Jesus, right? But I hadn't prayed. I'll be completely honest. I totally, not in one moment of me trying to work out about an Uber, about Google Maps and how I was going to walk there, had I actually thought to stop and pray confessions of a pastor. But he answered her prayer. And I was kind of looking around and I was thinking, I wonder did any of these people pray? I'm thinking, nobody was like looking smug. Nobody looked like they were really smug and had. So I reckon God had answered her prayer in spite of our lack of asking them to intervene. Belief and worship often go hand in hand. You see, there has to be a moment where there's a realization that God is real, that he is who he says he is, and then our response is to worship him. Exodus 33:10. If you want to turn to that, it'll be on the screen if you want to turn, that's great as well. Exodus 33, verse 10. I love it that throughout the time that when God turned up with the Israelites from when they were in Egypt right through until he brought them into the promised land, there was just these, these moments where God, in fact, all of it, God's presence was with them the whole time. 33.10 says this, Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance of their tent. This, this cloud, this pillar of cloud they were talking about, they saw that God was with them. And they recognized that this was a sign that he had set for them and them alone. Can you imagine you've left your familiar home, as terrible as it was, living in slavery in Egypt. But it was familiar. Generations had grown up there. Their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, generations had grown up in the same place. It was familiar to them, even though it was terrible. You've miraculously, excuse me, crossed over the Red Sea. Now, here you are living as nomads in the desert. Now, these were city people, right? They lived in Egypt in, in towns and cities. So this was a whole brand new thing for them. All of a sudden, here they are living in a desert, a completely different way of life. And I'm sure there were times, there would be times when they would miss the familiar comforts that having a proper home would be. I'm sure it wasn't a luxurious home, but there must have been something that, that they would have missed. I would miss if I had to live in a tent. I mean, when we, one of the things that breaks my heart when we go and we serve the refugees is to see just the temporary aspect of their lives. That literally each night they're not sure if they go back to where their tent is, if their tent is even going to be there. They're not sure that if they left their sleeping bag and their possessions where they were, that the police or other people haven't came and taken them away. 
is completely uncertain, completely feels insecure. And these, the people of Israel, here they are, they find themselves, they're now living in tents and they're moving from place to place. And I'm sure there's days that they dreamt of eating beautiful, lovely Middle Eastern food of hummus, I'm imagining, I don't know, I haven't historically checked this, and pita bread and lamb and all the lovely things I imagine people eat in Egypt. And instead of the, meat, the quail and the manna that was being provided for them. And yet, every morning, they got up, opened up the door of their tents. No, not the flap of their tent. It wouldn't be a door. Opened up the flap of their tent, and they look out, and they look up, and what do they see? They see the cloud of God's presence hovering over them. Every night before they go to bed, they're closing up the flap of their tent. They look up, and what do they see? The cloud of fire as the presence of God hovered over them. A visual, tangible thing for them to see that God is with us. Even in these changed circumstances, even though we're not totally sure where we're going, even though our lives have completely turned upside down, even though we're still hard-hearted and rebellious and all those things, God is with us. God is with us. It was a sign no other people on this earth have ever had a sign from their God like this. God was setting them apart. He was saying, I, you are my people. I am with you, and I am going to tangibly appear in this glory cloud over you day and night. No wonder they worshipped. Could you imagine we walked out here this morning after church, and we looked up, and there was a glory cloud? Sometimes you hear of people seeing glory clouds, and I think, oh, I'd love to see a glory cloud. Exodus 34, 5 and 8. Another instance. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the, leave the guilty unpunished, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. In this instance, this is when Moses had gone up to Sinai for the second time to, to receive instructions from God, what we call the Ten Commandments. Now, some of you might remember this. So, first of all, Moses went up the mountain. He got, took his tablets. Could you imagine having to carve out all those laws onto tablets of stone? excruciatingly hard work. And God speaks to him, meets with him. He writes them all down. He comes down the mountain, and what does he find? The people are worshiping a golden idol that they've made with their own hands. How quickly they forget. Well, how quickly we all forget, because it's very easy to judge them, isn't it? But yet we all very quickly forget the provision of God. And here we find Moses goes up a second time. God has said to him, take another couple of tablets, take another two tablets, come back up the mountain. And God appears to him. And I think it's even more poignant that we realize that these are after they have rebelled and worshipped an idol. And the Lord says, he introduces himself as I am the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. We worship when our hearts are filled with the gratitude and in the awe of the grace, compassion, and provision of God in our lives. It's not hard to worship when he moves on our behalf, is it? 
It's not difficult to worship God, to come to Him with humility and with pouring out all in our hearts when we realize what it is He's forgive us for. Very often in, in those first weeks and months after we, we surrender our lives to Jesus for the first time, when we become born again, saved, when we, when we become a Christian, when we become a child of God, when we've made that decision, so often it's so much easier to worship in those days, isn't it? Do you remember how excited you felt? Do you remember how your heart was just on fire? But just like the Israelites, sometimes we forget. We forget about his goodness. We forget about what he has rescued us from. We forget about just what he has taken from us and when he's taken our sin away from us. Worship is when we recognize and acknowledge all that God has done for us. Who he is and what he has done is the beginning of worship. So we worship God alone. Matthew 4.10, Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the enemy, being tempted by Satan. And he comes to him and Jesus says this, away from me, Satan, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You'll notice that Jesus responds to the temptation with scripture. Every time, every time Jesus responds to Satan with scripture. But there's an important thing in this. Jesus, worship begins and ends with God. It is him and him alone who we were made to worship. And he is jealous for our worship. Anytime we give our love or our affection to any other person beside God in worship, we are stealing from God. It's like we're stealing from him. All our worship, all our affection, all our adoration belongs to him. So if you can imagine, it's like when you worship something else, when you give your, your heart and your adoration and your attention, it's like we're stealing from him. It's like we're taking from God what belongs to him, what's his right, what is truly his. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, we find Jesus, um, throughout his ministry, he's talking to Peter. And it's as if Jesus is trying to work out if his disciples have fully grasped and fully got who he is yet. And he says to Peter, who do, who do men say I am? Who do people say I am? And, and Peter replied, and he said, oh, they, some of them say you're a prophet or you're this and that. And Jesus says to him, but who do you say I am? He said to Peter. And Peter answers, you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the promised one. And Jesus looks at him and says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This is not the type of information that you can collect in your mind. This is something that is revealed spirit to spirit. And when God reveals to you that Jesus is the Son of God, that is the beginning of salvation. That is the beginning of salvation. It was in that moment when God began to reveal to you that Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is, that Jesus is his son, that Jesus came to be our redemption. That is the very beginning of our faith in God. That's the very beginning of our salvation. And only the Spirit can do it. Only the Holy Spirit can do that work. God's Spirit speaking to our spirit. Now, Thomas, we find him, and Thomas was a little further behind than Peter. And these are the only two accounts we have. We don't know if Jesus went around all the disciples one by one and worked out where they were at and where they were in their faith and belief. But we see with Thomas that Thomas spent a lot of his time in disbelief. He spent a lot of his time verbalizing his doubt. So when Jesus rose from the dead and, he came, and the disciples started coming back and giving these accounts of Jesus being raised from the dead, 
after they'd seen him brutally die on the cross, Thomas really struggled to believe. He struggled to believe it. Now, Thomas knew that these people were honest people. He had lived life, not just with Jesus, but with the other disciples, but yet he struggled to believe that Jesus was alive again. And then we see this encounter with Jesus and Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord, my God. Jesus stood in the middle of them. He said, Peace be with you. And Thomas believed. He believed. Thomas answered, my Lord, my God, and that was a moment of worship from the bottom of a soul. The moment that you see and know and recognize God, that he is God, is the beginning of worship in your life. Secondly, we worship God on the grounds of his shed blood. It is the blood of Jesus that makes it possible for us to worship God in the way we do. It's the blood of Jesus that has opened the way for you and I to have an intimate relationship with God. We get to come right into the holy of holies, into the holiest of places because of the blood of Jesus. He has paved the way. So when we bow our heads and we bow our knees or we stand or we sit or whatever way we, we physically reflect our worship, we get to come right into the holy holies, right into the most precious place in the universe because of the blood of Jesus because of his sacrifice. And when we understand these things and we come into his presence because of his blood, then we get to speak to the Father the very thing that God has designed us for. God has designed us to be worshipers. But it's only because through Jesus' blood that we get to come into that place. Hebrews 10, 19 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, We've entered into a relationship with Jesus, with the Father through the Son, because Jesus has broken the veil. Remember the veil in the temple? It has been torn in two, and we get to come right into the most holiest, holiest of place because of Jesus. And thirdly, we worship God by the Spirit of God. Philippians 1, 1 to 3 says this, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those manipulators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Right back in the Old Testament, there was a symbol that, there was, that meant that you were a birthright as an Israelite, and it was circumcision, and all the men crossed their legs. Right, so that at eight days old, every male Israelite was circumcised, and that this was a symbol of their birthright. This was a symbol to say, "You, I belong to Israel. I belong to the God of Israel." In the new church, in the early days of the new church, there was this debate and argument was going on between the new believers and the new church, between the Jews and the Gentiles, because Gentiles were coming into the church. 
at the same time as, as Jews were coming to know the truth of who Jesus was and his resurrection. And the argument was this, do we need to now become circumcised? Do we need to then be able to show that this new birthright, this birthright belongs to us as well, being part of the people of God? And this is how Paul answers them. And he says, you're now circumcised in your heart. Your circumcision is that you are setting yourself apart in your heart through the Holy Spirit. And that is your identification as being a part of the people of God. It's not a physical circumcision anymore. It's a spiritual circumcision. And spiritual circumcision is really, it's when our hearts have been quickened to the reality of the person of God. Put very simply, it's when we fall in love with Jesus. That's when our hearts become circumcised. When we fall in love with him. See, this relationship with Jesus that leads us to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not just saying a prayer and ticking a box. This is about a relationship with the living God. This is about falling in love with Jesus. Falling in love with him. And I, here's my, um, let me commend this to you this morning. If you want to fall in love with Jesus more in your life, the best way to do that is in worship. We come to him and we sing songs to him. And to be honest, the songs in a way are not irrelevant because we're singing truth, but they're like a vehicle for us to come into his presence. Because of his blood, we get to come right into the Holy of Holies, right into the most precious of places in the universe. We get to come before God face to face. And we, once we see him, once we catch a glimpse of him, we cannot help but fall in love with him. And it's the falling in love with him that's the circumcision in our hearts. That's our birthright. John 4, 23, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And he says, yet a time has come and a now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Our worship of God is, is in and through the Holy Spirit. It is a work of Jesus and his shed blood. Worship takes the whole Godhead into consideration. We come and we worship God. We worship God the Father. We recognize who he is. We recognize and we believe. We believe you are who you say you are. We come into the presence, into the most holiest of holiest places through the shed blood of Jesus. And we worship in spirit. The Holy Spirit that dwells within us, we worship our spirit to his spirit. There are many results. We, sorry. We know that when we come together and worship, that God comes in his presence. When we can get the distractions out of our head, when we can manage to turn off all those other conversations that are going on in our own minds, all those lists, all those things we have to do, all those things we wish we hadn't said, all those problems that we have, and all those things that are constantly whirring around in our mind, when we get into the place of worship, when we come into before God, and we recognize who he is, when we speak truth about who he is, when we come right into that place of the holy and holies, then his presence comes. 
You wonder why we sing four songs? Because sometimes it takes four songs to get us to that place. Personally, at home, sometimes it takes six. We persevere until we get to that place. That is the goal. We want to see Jesus face to face. We want to see Jesus face to face because when we come into this place of worship, we are transformed. We are transformed in that place. We no longer are the same. Isaiah had a vision in Isaiah 6, and he says in Isaiah 6, 1 to 5, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphim, each had six wings, with two wings that covered their faces, two that covered their feet, and two were for flying. Wow, that sounds like a very big angel. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, Isaiah cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among the people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah sees the throne of God. He sees the angels singing, holy, holy, holy. He feels the earth shake to the very foundations with their voices, worshiping and praising God. The temple is filled with smoke, and then there's this realization, woe is me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. So often when we come before God, we come right into that place of worship. We have got past the distractions. We've realized that we come through the precious blood of Jesus. We come right into the throne room, and we are faced with ourselves. And there is an invitation for transformation. Notice God doesn't say to Isaiah, you are a man of unclean lips. It's the recognition in him as himself because he is in a holy place. There's been so many times in my life where I have had transformational encounters with Jesus in worship. So many times. Have you? Can you remember times when you have worshipped Maybe not in this place, maybe here, where God has met you right where you are, where he has begun to heal your heart, where he has convicted you of things in your life that you need to put right, where he has begun to do a deep, deep work of a spirit in your soul and your heart, where he's given you solutions to problems, where he has given you faith to believe for breakthrough, where there's this moment of transformation when we come face to face with God. There is no other place I'd rather be. And we talk about we want to learn how to be with Jesus, we want to become like Jesus, and we want to do the things he did. Well, worship fits right between the both. It's where we come and be with Jesus, but where he completely transforms us. If you want your life to grow, if you want your faith to grow, if, you want, if you're frustrated with your life that you can't seem to be able to overcome sin in your life, or you can't seem to be able to see a change in your life, then I c commend to you as highly as I can, worship. Worship. Persevere till you get to that place where it is you and Jesus and allow him to transform you. My heart burns when I read about the cloud of God's presence in the desert. And I long to see a visible cloud of God's glory. I've prayed for it before. Been like, let me see your glory, Jesus. 
Let me see your glory. I hear stories of people seeing clouds of gold dust, and I'm like, oh, God, let me see your glory. I want to see it. And I felt the Lord saying to me this morning, you want to see my glory, Michelle? Then look into the eyes of my people. My presence lives in them. You want to see God's glory? You look into the eyes of the person sitting beside you. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God dwells in those of us who are called sons and daughters of the King. He chooses to put his glory in us. Now, it's not that we worship each other. It's not what I'm saying, okay? We're not worshiping each other. But you want to see the glory of God, then you see it in humanity all around you. You recognize it. And you worship the God who created that person. You worship the God that would, that would even want to be anywhere near this broken humanity. And yet he chooses to send his son to shed his blood so we can come and be reunited with God. And more than that, that we can come right in and we can worship him. His glory rests on us. Wow. Just now, Stephen's going to come. And our ministry time this morning is a time of worship. I hope I have articulated that as clearly as I wanted to this morning. Of what it means to worship and, and how God has, has paved the way for us to come and worship him. And as we were singing earlier, I, you would have thought that I told Stephen what songs to sing, and I really hadn't. And it's just, I love how the Holy Spirit does that. I love how he goes before us. And in fact, Stephen had his set planned way before I wrote my talk. So uh, it was definitely the Holy Spirit who was at work this morning. But why don't we stand together?